0: Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 24th. I'm your reader, Dagna. We'll begin with today's mini-editorial, which is written by William F. Burroughs of Sioux City, and he writes, Thank you to the nine citizens who put their hat in the ring for the County Board of Supervisors' vacancy. May the best women win. Again, this was uh, written by William Burroughs of Sioux City. Um, This next story is from yesterday's school board meeting, and the headline is Sioux City Public School Opposes Private School Voucher Programs. The Sioux City Community School District opposes Iowa publicly funding private schools. The school board approved on Monday a resolution opposing Governor Kim Reynolds and Republican lawmakers' proposed state-funded private school financial assistance package. The governor is expected to sign the bill when it arrives at her desk. The resolution also states the district opposes all forms of educational savings accounts, voucher programs, and additional public funds appropriated for private schools. According to the resolution, carving Iowa's education funding pie into more pieces necessarily means a smaller piece of pie for Iowa's public school students. The proposed program would offer state funding to any Iowa student who wishes to attend a private school. The student would receive $7,598 every year to be put toward tuition, textbooks, classroom materials, and other types of educational programming expenses. Public schools would lose out on the per-pupil funding for any student who chooses to utilize the program. The school district would get roughly $1,200 in state funding for each student who lives in the district. The program is estimated to cost more than $340 million annually, with a total cost of $918 million over four years. Interim Superintendent Rod Erlingwine said that there are 10 private schools in Woodbury County which would receive a total of $12.5 million from this program. All of this with no accountability, no transparency, he said. School board member Bernie Scalero said she went to Des Moines on Tuesday to speak to the Iowa House for the district against the programs. She said there were about 100 people signed up to speak, but it was cut off at 50. She was still able to speak and share the district's perspective. The state already has an extensive offering for school choices, such as open enrollment, state scholarship support for private school tuition, homeschooling, free virtual schooling, and tax credits for tuition and textbook expenses, according to the resolution. Iowa is ranked ninth out of the 50 states in the nation in school choice by the Heritage Foundation's Education Freedom Report Card, with this ranking predating the expansion of charter schools, tax credits for homeschool, and elimination of open enrollment deadline, according to the resolution. And now a um, accompanying article on that concerning this uh, res. Um, this bill. Private tuition aid bill on way to Reynolds desk. A state-funded private school financial assistance package costing $345 million a year is headed to Governor Kim Reynolds desk where her signature would seal her top legislative priority in state, to state law. After more than eight hours of debate, the Bill passed both the chambers of the Iowa legislature early Tuesday. Reynolds will sign the legislation into law later Tuesday, her office said, during National School Choice Week. The bill signing will come exactly two weeks after the bill was introduced. After the bill passed the final Senate hurdle at around 1230 a.m., Reynolds celebrated with her fellow Republicans just behind the Senate chamber. Reynolds said in a statement, For the first time, we will fund students instead of a system, a decisive step in ensuring that every child in Iowa can receive the best education possible. Parents, not the government, can now choose the education setting best suited to their child, regardless of their income or zip code. With this bill, Iowa has affirmed that educational freedom belongs to all, not just those who can afford it. The Iowa House was considered the final potential stumbling block for the proposal. The House, which, despite its Republican majorities, did not have enough votes to pass similar proposals each of the past two years, passed the governor's new, much broader proposal with a 55-45 vote Monday night. After the failures of the previous two proposals, Reynolds made what she calls school choice a top issue of her 2022 reelection campaign, which she won by a decisive 17 percentage points. However, this year's proposal is dramatically more expansive than the previous two. While the previous proposals were narrower and more limited in scope, this proposal eventually would make nearly $7,600 in state funding available to every Iowa K-12 through student who attends a private school. There are hundred—I mean, 33,692 Iowa students enrolled in private schools in the 2022-23 school year, according to State Education Department. Reynolds' proposal, House File 68, creates taxpayer-funded educational savings accounts in the first valued at $7,598, which is the amount the state spends per pupil on public K-12 education that families could use for private school tuition and other education expenses. The program would be phased in over three years. In the third year, all K-12 students, including private school students, would be eligible for the funding with no income restrictions. The plan also provides new funding to public districts, estimated at just more than $1,200 per student, for those who live in the district but attend private schools, and it removes some restraints on the state funding to allow schools to spend that money on teacher salaries. Supporters argued the legislation makes attending a private school possible for more Iowa students, and that taxpayer funding should be used to support any Iowa family who wishes to send their children to a private school. Representative John Wills, a Republican from Spirit Lake and floor manager of the bill in the House, said during the debate, if a current public school isn't working for a child, those parents need to have a choice. That's what this bill is going to allow. We don't want to force them to stay in a public school that doesn't work for them, that doesn't fit them, just because of the zip code they live in. Only Republicans voted to support the bill, and nine Republicans joined Democrats in opposition. Applause broke out among House Republicans after the vote. The focus of school choice isn't about schools. It isn't about teachers. It isn't about any of those things. The focus of school choice is about kids, Wills added during the more than five hours of debate in the house. It's about parents having the ability to be in the driver's seat for their kids' sake. This is about parents needing something different. They're desperate. Some parents are desperate for a change. We are going to offer that for them. Opponents counter that the state is responsible for funding public schools, that state programs already exist to help private school students, and that creating a new $345 million annual funding stream for private schools would put future funding of public schools at risk. Critics of the bill also note that taxpayer funding should not go to private schools that are not held to the same reporting requirements as public schools, and because private schools can choose which students to accept and which to reject. Public schools accept all kids. Private schools pick and choose, said Representative Jennifer Confirst, leader of the House Democrats from Windsor Heights. This is not about school choice. This is about school administrator choice. Democrats derided the program's price tag, saying those funds could better be used to subsidize public college tuition, expand pre-K, expand pre-K access, or boost public school funding. Several Democrats raised the contention that private schools are allowed to turn away or drop from enrollments children with special needs, learning dis- disabilities, or behavioral issues. Public schools are required by law to create individualized education plans for students with special needs, but private schools do not have the same requirement. Representative Heather Matson, a Democrat from Ankeny, said a student in her district with autism named Brandon would likely not be accepted at a private school. She said there is no choice for him because no private school will accept him because of his disabilities. But Brandon is accepted and has teachers and staff who work hard for him in the Ankeny Community School District. Representative Skyler Wheeler, a Republican from Hull who chairs the House Education Committee, said the plan allows parents who do not have the financial means to choose a school that's best for their children. This is about students. It's not about systems, he said. Tonight, in a historic fashion, the state of Iowa is going to uphold and uplift every family in the state. Wheeler called warnings that the plan would lead to consolidation and closure of rural schools, doom and gloom, saying the same concerns had been floated with past laws that he said ultimately had little impact on rural schools. Representative Thomas Moore, a Republican from Griswold and one of the nine House Republicans who voted against the bill, said he voted no because of strong opposition from his constituents. Even though his southwest Iowa district is strongly Republican, Moore said his constituents were calling on him to vote against the bill. My vote came down to my constituents, he said. I represent them. I don't represent myself, although I was opposed. Moore said he opposed the bill's high price tag and the fact a portion of the taxpayer funding will go to families who can already afford private schools. To me, being a fiscal conservative to give 33,000 people new money that they have already been spending on their own and don't really need, to me, that's money that we could be using for other purposes here at the Capitol, Moore said. The bill later passed the Iowa Senate by a 31 to 18 vote, with only Republicans supporting the bill and three Republicans joining all Democrats in opposition. Senator Zach Walz, leader of the Iowa Senate Democrats, said during the debate that the proposal would hurt rural communities by endangering their schools. He said it would only take a small number of students leaving a small school to cause significant financial distress. Walz called the proposal rushed, reckless, and radical. Where's the voice of rural education leaders in this discussion, Walls asked during the debate. This bill is Robin Hood in reverse. Senator Amy Sinclair, a Republican from Allerton who chairs the Senate's Education Committee, pushed back against Democrats' arguments and insisted the legislation will not harm public schools, whether urban or rural. She also said the new $345 million annual program will not stress future state budgets. This is not an attack on teachers or public schools. This is not an attack on public education, Sinclair said during Senate debate. This bill is about rights, parental rights and choice in education. We empower the parents to make the educational choice that best suits their child. Legislators from both parties argued that public opinion is on their side of the state-funded private school assistance debate. Polling from the Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa Poll, considered the gold standard in Iowa polling, showed that a majority of Iowans opposed Reynolds' more limited proposal in 2022. There has been no public polling on this year's bill. Democrats, who are in the minority in both chambers, argued that Republicans, with their agenda-setting majorities, took actions in both chambers that limited debate on the bill. In the House, Republicans created a new Education Reform Committee in which to debate the bill, then wrote and approved a new chamber rule that said even though the bill contains new state spending, it is not required to go through the Budget Committee. We should not be passing legislation or rules that like circumvent the process or eliminate input from the public or each other, Congress said. To the 39 new members of this chamber, I am so sorry that your first vote is one that circumvents the process and that allows less oversight on incredibly expensive legislation. In the Senate, Republicans used a debate process rule that effectively made it so Democrats could not introduce amendments. "'It is a willful, blatant way of cutting everybody out of perfecting the bill "'and listening to our constituents who sent us hundreds of emails about what's wrong with it,' said Senator Bill Dotsler, a Democrat from Waterloo. "'Why wouldn't you want to listen to the public? "'Why wouldn't you want to listen to somebody who might have a good idea?' "'I've been here longer than any other senator in this room,' Dotsler added, "'and I've never seen anything so blatant in all my years.'" Earlier Monday, the Nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency issued its highly anticipated fiscal analysis, Reynolds' proposal, just hours ahead of floor debate on the bill. The agency projects the proposed proposal will cost $345 million annually once fully implemented. The Nonpartisan Agency's estimates closely align with those made earlier by Reynolds' office, which predicted the program would cost $341 million when fully implemented candidates for Woodbury County Board seat pitched themselves. Nine candidates for the open Woodbury County Board of Supervisors seat participated in public interviews on Monday. Each individual was given time to introduce themselves and answer questions from the committee to appoint. The applicants are Jeanette Beekman of Pearson, Chad Benson of Lawton, Charles H. Clark of Lawton, John F. Crick of Mobile, Nathan Howman of Correctionville, Willard Brian McNaughton of Lawton, Mark Nelson of Correctionville, Barbara Solenneker of Sioux City, and Todd Week of Lawton. A random order was chosen for the interviews. The vacant seat was previously held by Rocky DeWitt, who resigned after being elected to the Iowa Senate. A committee made up of Treasurer Tina Bertrand, County Attorney James Loomis, and Auditor Pat Gill are in charge of the appointment process and conducted the interviews. An individual will be chosen at 10 a.m. on Tuesday at the Board of Supervisors meeting. The individual will then be sworn in at 3.15 p.m. the same day. John F. Crick of Mobile is currently retired. He served in the U.S. Navy for four years and served on the Woodbury County Fire Board and Woodbury Central School Board. He is currently on the City of Mobile Zoning Board. Crick worked as the director of the Mobile Ambulance and Rescue for 45 years and responded to the Flight 232 crash in 1989. He was part of the team that extracted the pilots from the cockpit. He said he is fiscally conservative and his experiences on the school board working with the budget and negotiating with people would be beneficial. Jeanette Beekman of Pearson is currently the City Clerk for the City of Pearson and the Treasurer of the Pearson Vol- Volunteer Fire Department. She is also currently the Secretary of the Woodbury County Solid Waste Agency. Beekman said as a rural resident, she believed she could bring a unique perspective to the Board, along with her history working in government, especially in the areas of budgets and accounting. To me, the Board of Supervisors should be more public service than political, she said. She said she is someone who digs in and doesn't give up. She is working with the city of Quimby to help them bridge a $70,000 deficit in their budget and manage their finances. Charles H. Clark of Lawton is a sixth-generation farmer and equipment operator for the Woodbury County Roads Department. If chosen, Clark plans to resign from the Roads Department. Clark said many of the skills he uses at his farm are applicable and beneficial to the board, such as working with others, various management skills, and humility. He said the top asset he he would bring to the board is his nine years of experience with the roads department. I can bring a lot of good insight into what goes on and what they need and maybe why things do fail sometimes prematurely, he said. One of the areas of the county Clark wants to focus on is improving some of the blacktop roads throughout Woodbury County due to steep embankments and a lack of shoulders. When accidents do occur there, he said it often causes rollovers and sometimes fatalities. He said he would have to abstain from any discussion of wood turbines as his family has decided to put some on their farm. Barbara Slonicker of Sioux City is currently the executive vice president of the Siouxland Chamber of Commerce and the director of airport marketing at the Sioux Gateway Airport. She is in currently involved in 10 different board or community organizations. She said if a conflict of interest does arise, she would rec- recuse herself from the vote and said she can juggle the different responsibilities. She said she has heard from citizens that they want an additional voice with ex- increased perspective and balanced experience and fiscal discipline, which she believes is well, she is well suited for. Slonicker said her vision of the county is to have a good quality of life, fiscal discipline, and strategic economic development. Mark Nelson of Correctionville is the owner and operator of Hungry Canyon Cattle Company and farm manager of Barn and Feedlots. He is currently involved with eight different community organizations, including the Woodbury County Farm Bureau as director and treasurer, and the Woodbury County Cattlemen's Association as director and president. If chosen, he would have to step back from leadership roles in both organizations due to their bylaws. Nelson has been vocal in the county and at Board of Supervisors meetings on a variety of issues, including the Wood wind turbine issue and co-organized a petition against the turbines. He said he wants to be a servant leader by listening, understanding, having empathy, and opening the conversation for others. Todd Week of Lawton is currently the construction site superintendent at the Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center. He previously worked for 30 years as an employee of the Woodbury County Sheriff's Office and ran for sheriff in 2020. His father is Ron Week chair of the Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center Authority. Weeks said he has spoken with his current employer, the Baker Group, and was told they would work around the supervisor's schedule if selected. He said he knows every corner of the county and wants to continue to serve the residents. I pride myself in not making snap judgments. I believe in building sustainable budgets without cutting services. I will promise to be the voice for the rural part of this county, he said nathan halman of correctionville currently works for diamond installation he served correctionville in a number of roles including council member mayor pro temp and mayor until twenty twenty one he said he did not rerun for mayor and decided to take time away from politics but said he missed it while mayor he attended a variety of board and commission meetings including the 911 Commission, emergency management, assessor budget meetings, and area solid waste board. He said economic de- development is a huge need for small towns. He said many of the small towns need direction on what they need to do to be more attractive. Chad Benson of Lawton is currently a teacher with the Sioux City Community School District. He said he has no political or personal agenda and only wants to serve on the board and help taxpayers. He said he wants to allocate the tax dollars where it has the best impact on the county. He does not support wind turbines or pipelines, but he wants the county beautiful and safe for future generations. Benson said access to mental health is an issue that faces Woodbury County residents. It is an area he wants to dig into as a supervisor. Willard Brian McNaughton of Lawton is the owner of Max H back sheet metal shop and owner of Echo Point Learning. He is currently a Banner Township trustee. McNaughton wants to focus on the Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center, increase social programs and intervention programs, rural development, support the rural ambulance and fire departments. He said he would prioritize these issues by first focusing on what the county is currently doing, second would be making easy changes, and the third would be to start a project in advance instead of after they are needed. Halman and McNaughton ran with DeWitt and four others for the seat in 2016. Laurel murder case sent to county court for hearing. Prosecutors must show evidence that Carrie Jones fatally shot a Laurel, Nebraska man inside his home before her case can proceed to District Court. District Judge Brian Meisner on Monday granted a defense request for a preliminary hearing in county court to determine if there's probable cause that Jones committed first-degree murder and other crimes before she can be bound over to Cedar County District Court for arraignment. The hearing was scheduled for February 15th prosecutors in december filed a complaint charging Jones forty three of Laurel with first degree murder tampering with physical evidence and being an accessory to a felony directly in district court rather than in county court as is the usual procedure Jones has a right to a preliminary hearing first in county court and her attorney Douglas Stratton requested the hearing Monday at what was scheduled to be an arraignment in district court. Meismer also granted Stratton's motions for the appointment of an additional attorney to represent Jones and to receive a copy of the search warrant and affidavit the state used as a basis for the charges against Jones. Those documents were filed under seal because they contained significant details of the investigation. Assistant Nebraska Attorney General Corey O'Brien objected to neither motion but asked Meismer to ensure the affidavit remained sealed after Stratton received his copy. If details in those documents were made public and reported by the media, O'Brien said, it could jeopardize the right of Jones and her husband, Jason Jones, who also faces murder charges, to receive a fair trial in Cedar County or nearby counties if the trial were to be moved because it was determined an impartial jury could not be seated in Cedar County as a result of the extensive media coverage the case has received. We'd probably be looking at taking this case out to Scott's Bluff if the affidavit was unsealed, O'Brien said. Carrie Jones is accused of killing Gene Twyford in his home at 503 Elm Street in the early morning hours of August 4th, when the body of Twyford, 86, his wife Janet, 85, and their daughter Dana, 55, were found shot to death in their burning home. The bodies were discovered shortly after firefighters and police who responded to an explosion and fire three blocks away at 209 Elm Street found the body of Michelle Eberling, 53, who also had been shot. According to court documents, Jones destroyed or concealed physical evidence after the shootings and hid her husband in an effort to prevent his arrest. She was arrested December 16th and remains in custody on a one million dollar bond. Jason Jones, 42, who lived with his wife across the street from Aberling, was arrested at their home about 24 hours after the bodies were discovered. He is charged with four counts each of first-degree murder and use of a firearm to commit a felony, and two counts of first-degree arson. He is accused of shooting all four victims and setting the two houses on fire. O'Brien last week filed notice that the state will seek the death penalty against Jason Jones noting aggravating circumstances that he committed several killings at the same time and also killed to conceal the commission of another crime or to conceal his identity. Jason Jones also had been scheduled to be arraigned Monday, but his attorney filed a waiver of an appearance last week and advised the court Jones would not be entering a plea because he would file a motion to quash sections of Nebraska's death penalty statute as unconstitution. In the, fu- in the motion filed Friday, Todd Lancaster of the Nebraska Commission on Public Advocacy argued the prosecution's decision to seek the death penalty is arbitrary and violates the due process and equal protection clauses in the United States Constitution. The state's death penalty statute also violates the Constitution because the defense is prohibited from presenting mitigating evidence to jurors to weigh against aggravating factors used in arguing for the death penalty, and a jury is not allowed to decide if a defendant will be sentenced to death. Lancaster also said Nebraska's death penalty statute is unconstitutionally vague. A hearing on the motion to quash is scheduled for February twenty seventh in Cedar County District Court. Jones is being held without bond at the Nebraska Department of Corrections Reception and Treatment Center in Lincoln, where he continues to receive treatment for burns received in the incidents. Sioux City Council schedules a hearing for Riverside Recreational Sports Complex. The Sioux City Council has scheduled a February 6 hearing to discuss the Hess Foundation's rental of the Riverside Recreation Sports Complex. The Hess Foundation, a nonprofit organization affiliated with the Arena Sports Academy, is also currently renting Longline's Family Rec Center second floor from the city, but the facility's climbing wall and party room are not included in the lease. City staff had recommended the City Council to award a lease agreement to the Hess Foundation because it had higher registration numbers than West Side Little League and would need to utilize a great number of fields. When city staff met with representatives from both sides on January 6, the Hess Foundation said they had commitments for 52 softball teams, with the possibility of adding another 20 teams. The West Side Little League said it had 12 individual registrations. Also during the January sixth meeting, the Hess Foundation said they would need all six riverside complex fields at other locations during Monday's meeting council member Matthew O'Kane expressed disappointment over how the situation had been handled mayor Bob Scott agreed this should never got to where it got, he said. This ought to be about kids, not about personalities. In other news, JEO Consulting Group and Sioux City Engineering Department presented a $51 million plan to reconstruct some of downtown's most at-risk water lines, sewer lines, and storm lines. Some of the city's current infrastructure has been in service for as long as 136 years. The downtown infrastructure plan will be broken down into more than 25 individual projects and be completed over a 10- to 20-year time period. Marrow man who killed stepson dies in prison. A Marrow, Iowa man sentenced last fall to life in prison for killing his stepson has died in prison. The Iowa Department of Corrections said Thomas Knapp, 84, died Thursday of natural causes while in hospice at the Iowa Medical Classification Center, where he had been housed for a chronic illness. A Plymouth County jury in September found Knapp guilty of first-degree murder and willful injury for the May eleventh, 2020, shooting death of 51-year-old Kevin Jozek in their rural Merrill home. Knapp also was found guilty of willful injury and two counts of domestic abuse assault for beating his now ex-wife, Darlene Knapp, just before the shooting. Thomas Knapp was sentenced in October to life in prison without parole. Darlene Knapp testified at trial that Thomas Knapp was mad at Juzek, blaming him for knocking over a birdbath in their yard. Later that morning, Darlene said she went to Thomas' bedroom where he punched her in the face and struck her with a wooden exercise bar, breaking her left hand. Juzek came to the door and closed it after his mother left and held it shut so Tom Snap could not pursue her. Knapp grabbed a twenty gauge shotgun he kept in his room and shot Juzak through the door, striking him in the abdomen. Juzak struggled staggered into the living room and collapsed on the floor. Knapp came out of his bedroom, walked up to Juzek, and shot him a second time in the chest while Darlene watched. At trial, jurors heard recordings of Thomas Knapp's interviews with authorities in which he told them Juzek had intentionally aggravated him for years. Rock legend Alice Cooper coming to the Tyson on May 7th. Rock legend Alice Cooper will be bringing his Too Close for Comfort tour to the Tyson Events Center at 401 Garden Drive on May 7th. Alice Cooper has pioneered a grandly theatrical brand of hard rock that was designed to shock. Drawing equally from horror movies, vaudeville, and garage rock, his stage shows featured everything from electric chairs, guillotines, and boa constrictors. Tix's Tickets will go on sale at 10 a.m. Friday at PrimeBankTix.com, TysonCenter.com, or by visiting the Prime Bank box office at the Tyson Events Center. Crescent Park Elementary building could face demolition. Crescent Park Elementary could potentially be demolished to make way for a new apartment complex if the school district accepts an offer to buy the property submitted by a developer. If that doesn't pan out, it could be converted into historic apartments similar to some other older buildings in Sioux City, or it could become a new space for the urban Native Center. The district received two bids for the Crescent Park property at 114 West 27th Street. The school board set a public hearing for February 13th for community members to provide input. The high bid was submitted by Kosovic and Murphy Developments of Sioux City, who offered the Sioux City's Community School District $150,000 for the property. They plan to demolish the building and instead build one or two three-story apartment buildings. Kosovic and Murphy Developments recently developed the District 42 apartments in Sunnybrook and the Elk Greek Housing Subdivision. Currently, they are building a 24-unit apartment complex in the Morningside area. The developer was also behind the redevelopment of the former Metz Baking Company plant on Highway 75. The other build was one hundred and ten thousand dollars submitted by Arch Icon Development and Construction who plan on remodeling the building into an historic apartment complex. Arch Icon renovated the Central High School Annex into the Aberdeen Apartments and the Everett Elementary School building into an apartment complex. They originally billed one bid at $110,000 with a contingency that they would offer up to $1,000 more than the competing offer up to $140,000. Facilities and Maintenance Director Tim Paul said they offered to change the cap to $200,000. District Legal Counsel Dan Moore said the district could entertain other offers during the public hearing on February 13th. The district does not have to take the highest best offer and can consider other factors such as if they want to keep the building the urban native center also submitted a non-purchase proposal to the district to use the building for expanded services to both children and community members the center would remodel the building to provide a safe learning environment for children and community members while also teaching various activities and culture director val Uken said in the proposal it will also expand outreach opportunities and mental health support The space would be used to create a preschool room, a sensory activity engagement room for students to learn about nature, technology, and art, a dance room, relaxation room, library, elder craft room, gym and lunch room, elder meeting room, community education classrooms, other classrooms for crafts and activities such as music, adult art, community computer labs, sewing and horticulture, outreach and administrative space, and therapy rooms. The proposal states the building could be complete by late October. The aging facility is built in 1920 and is by far the oldest school building in the district. The school closed in 2016 when Perry Creek Elementary opened, combining students from Crescent Park, Lincoln, and Clark Elementary. Paul said if he had to grade the building condition between an A and an F, he would give it a D. The reason it would achieve that grade is the boiler system in the building is an old steam boiler system that is going to need some upgrades, he said. The building is also not ADA compliant and has no air conditioning. Prior to hosting Hunt Elementary students, the building held Bryant Elementary students while the new school was built. The district has sold a variety of former school buildings to the public and has become churches and apartment complex over by the new owner. You are listening to the reading of the paper of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 24th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. There are no obituaries in today's paper. We'll now move to um, some Nebraska news. Ricketts officially takes his seat in the Senate. Former Governor Pete Ricketts was sworn into office as Nebraska's newest U.S. Senator on Monday and immediately pointed to tax reduction, expansion of trade opportunities for agriculture producers, and a determination to stand up the to the Chinese Communist Party as among his priorities. Ricketts was formally sworn in by Vice President Kamala Harris in a brief ceremony with his wife, Suzanne Shore, other family members and family and friends watching the event from the Senate gallery. Nebraska Senator Deb Fischer escorted Ricketts to the front of the Senate chamber to take the oath of office there is no higher honor than serving the people of nebraska and representing my fellow nebraskans in the senate is an incredible privilege rickett said in a press release in state government we've shown what a great impact conservative leadership can have and i'm going to bring the same approach to washington he said among his priorities in the Senate will be to strengthen our national defense and make government work better, he said. During a telephone interview later in the day, Ricketts said he believes there will be opportunities for him to work across the aisle in the Senate, despite the widening and increasingly sharp partisan divide in Washington. Ricketts said he absolutely can work with Democrats on a lot of issues between the 40-yard lines, including support for agriculture, of trade, and opposition to the Chinese Communist Party a number of democratic senators approached him during the day he said asked what he believes might be the most memorable about this day ricketts said he was struck by the awe he felt entering the nation's capital for the first time as a senator to be part of the body that the founders designed I was not expecting that, he said. I was always in awe of the state capitol, and it was the same feeling I felt when I entered the capitol in Lincoln for the first time, as the elected governor Ricketts said. Ricketts is bringing the Senate back to its full 100-person strength, said Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who welcomed Ricketts on the Senate floor after he was sworn into office by Harris. The Republican has joined the Senate as a Democrat navigate a 51-49 majority, having gained one seat in last year's election. Rickett's arrival in Washington places a former governor in a Nebraska Senate seat for the first time since Mike Johans completed a single term in 2015. Four of the five members of Nebraska's congressional delegation, all but Representative Don Bacon, have now have now have moved on to Washington from state government. Fisher, Representative Mike Flood, and Representative Adrian Smith all emerged directly from the legislature. For Ricketts, the appointment to a Senate seat by Governor Jim Pillen fulfilled an unsuccessful quest. He first began in 2006 when he was the Republican nominee for the Senate held Senate seat held by Democratic Senator Ben Nelson. Although there have been no former governors in Nebraska's delegation for the past eight years, both seats were held by former governors when Senator Jim Exxon served together with Bo- Senator Bob Kerry in the 1990s and when Nelson served with Johans for the first four years. Five of the last eight governors have now moved on to the Senate. Ricketts was appointed by Pillen to the Senate seat vacated by Ben Sass, who resigned from the Senate earlier this month to become president of the University of Florida beginning February 6, with four years remaining in his six-year Senate term. Ricketts will serve the next two years of that term and then seek election to the final two years in 2024. He has also pledged to seek election to a full six-year term in 2026. Nebraska voters will have the unusual opportunity to fill both Senate seats in the 2024 election when Fisher's second term comes to an end. Fisher has signaled her intention to seek a third term. While the new GOP senator's politics reflect his conservative constituents. Some politicians in both parties raised questions about his appointment. Ricketts, who has put his own net worth at about $50 million, contributed more than $100,000 of his own money to Pillen's campaign. Ricketts and his family members have used their fortunes to push both their political agendas and to get allies elected to key political seats. Ricketts' father, TD Amitrade founder Joe Ricketts, is worth an estimated four billion dollars praised Ricketts service in Nebraska and said the wealthy investor has applied private sector savvy to the work of public administration with great effect. The people of Nebraska chose wisely in electing and re-electing Governor Ricketts by huge margins, and their new governor chose wisely in sending his predecessor here to this chamber. And now for South Dakota, Governor Noam says her cell phone was hacked. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem said Monday that her personal cell phone number has been hacked and blamed it on the release of her Social Security number amid hundreds of documents that the House January 6th Committee released last year. The Republican governor, who is weighing a 2024 White House bid, said in a statement that her personal cell phone Number, phone number has been linked to hoax calls. She has written letters urging U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland in Congress to investigate the release of her family's social security numbers after they were included in a list of personal information for thousands of people who visited the White House during then-President Donald Trump's term. Callous mishandling of personal information has real-world consequences, Noam said in a statement. If you get such a phone call from my number, know that I had no involvement. Noam said the South Dakota's Fusion Center, a state agency that compiles criminal intelligence, has been notified of the cell phone hack. Her office did not offer further evidence that the release of her personal information led to the hack. And staying in South Dakota, we have uh, the headline, South Dakota House Passes $200 Million Fund for Housing Infrastructure. The South Dakota House passed a $200 million fund for housing infrastructure projects, pushing the funding package over its final hurdle in the legislature after a right-wing group of Republicans sought to thwart its passage. The funding package evenly divides the $200 million between loans and grants from the South Dakota Housing Development Authority for construction companies to build infrastructure projects like roads and water lines around new housing developments. It uses $150 million of state general funds and $50 million in federal funds from the American Rescue Plan. It is one of the first pieces of legislation to clear the Republican-controlled legislature this year and cont- includes an emergency clause that would allow the money to be distributed immediately after Governor Christy Nome signs it. The distribution of the funding has seen delays since amid a political fight, between a right-wing group of lawmakers and the Republican governor. Last year, the Republican-controlled legislature, against the governor's wishes, allocated the funds to the South Dakota Housing Development Authority rather than the governor's Office of Economic Development the housing development authority however declined the money because it did not match with its mission of providing housing for low and moderate income people and made the funding available regardless of income level republican representative roger chase who carried the bill in the house said he heard from many communities last year that had to halt housing projects until the funding could be distributed. The legislature has sought to spur housing development amid a labor shortage in the rural state. This is an important economic development tool that we are creating, he said. The governor and Republican legislative leaders aimed to speed a fix to the issue through the Statehouse this year and included an emergency clause that would allow the money to be sent spent ahead of the spring construction season. It faced a final legislative vote in the House last week, but a right-wing group of lawmakers sought to stop the funding. On Monday, some House lawmakers appeared determined to halt passage of the funding package, even if it meant by only a few minutes. A group of right-wing lawmakers pushed multiple amendments to the bill and inducing rounds of votes and debate that stretched into the late afternoon. Republican Representative John Hansen derided the package as big government spending that would subda- subsidize a construction industry already seeing plenty of growth. Republicans opposed the bill also harped on where the money would be spent. Republican Representative Phil Jensen, who opposed the bill, also accused his fellow GOP member Chase of engaging in a conflict of interest by carrying the bill because he works as a real estate in the real estate industry as a broker. Republican House Speaker Hugh Bartles overruled Jensen's objection. The bill, which passed Monday on a 54-16 vote, gained the two-thirds majority needed to enact it immediately. And also in South Dakota, South Dakota lawmakers push optional curriculum. A group of South Dakota lawmakers pushed forward an initiative on Monday that offers an optional social studies curriculum for K-12 through and university students rooted in American exceptionalism and the founding ideals of the U.S. Programs offering similar educational models have been explored in other states, like a Michigan-based program from conservative Hillsdale College that has found support in South Dakota, Tennessee, and Florida lawmakers. But the Center of American Exceptionalism out of Black Hill State University, South Dakota's largest teacher preparation institute, would present a state-funded one. The bill passed through the House Education Committee, which recommended it go to the state budget-making process. Should the bill be enacted, it would be the first of its kind and would involve the center developing public university courses comparing the United States with socialist and communist nations and overseeing a K-12 social and civic curriculum from the Center for Civic Education called We the People, the Citizen and the Constitution Program. Prime sponsor, Republican Representative Scott Oldenbach, emphasized that the $150 milli- $150,000 bill aims to balance critical thinking with a love for the United States. He said when the students graduate from institutions, they should love America. Black Hill State University political science professor Nicholas Drummond praised the center's proposed goal of creating a unified history by generation generating hope for the future based on founding ideals. He argued the country is going down two paths, one of excessive individualism and another of war and identity politics. I spent far too much time studying the decline of this country, Droman said. It leads us away from the conception of a national interest in the common good. Odenbach referenced Governor Christy Nolmes' recent enthusiasm for social studies that embrace the nation's founding ideals. He also argued it would help school districts avoid education material companies that can charge the state $400,000 to implement even just one content area. Jonathan Zimmerman, an education historian at the University of Pennsylvania, said that American exceptionalism has long been a rallying call on the political right, but he was not aware of anywhere else where such an educational goal has been enshrined in law. He added that liberals have also embraced ideals like equality and human rights that are detailed in the nation's founding documents. The state's standards for social studies have been under review for over a year, and education groups have been critical of Noam's efforts to infuse patriotic education goals into them. State education groups on Monday also pointed out limits to Odenbach's plan, such as a lack of long-term funding and being out of touch with individual schools. We'll now move to sports and with Musketeers hockey. Mark named USHL Defenseman of the Week. Sioux City Musketeer defenseman Ren Mark today was named the USHL Defenseman of the Week. Mark netted his first goal as a musketeer and in the USHL in Friday's win over the uh, Lincoln Stars. He added a second goal of the weekend in Saturday's victory over Lincoln. Mark on the weekend had a plus-minus of .4. Musketeers acquired Mark in January 2nd on in a trade with the Minnesota Wilderness of the NAHL. He was the second leading scorer for the Wilderness. He was a top-scoring defenseman for Minnesota and second-highest-scoring blue liner in the North American Hockey League with 24 points. He dished out 20 assists and netted four goals across 31 games. In seven contests now with the Musketeers, he has scored two goals and has a plus-minus of plus three. The Musketeers now currently sit in fourth place in the Western Conference standings. Next weekend features a pair of road games starting in Des Moines on Friday at 7.05 p.m. They next play on their home ice on February 3rd when they again face the Buccaneers at the Tyson Events Center. We'll now move to some entertainment news with the headline New Club Historic Location. Al Capone, a.k.a. Scarface, was a notorious gangster who would, reportedly, frequent 4th Street establishments in Sioux City, a.k.a. Little Chicago, during the Prohibition era. Fast forward a century or so, Capone's is now also the namesake of a 412 Jones Street bar. Now, don't worry, you will not find Public Enemy Number 1 anywhere on the premises. Instead, you will find craft beers, creative cocktails, and a rock and dance floor. Yasinia Sanchez explained of the recently opening opened business. We named our bar Capones as a nod to past Fourth Street businesses. Our building, which dates back to at least the nineteen forties, was probably in the middle of the action back when things were very different. Times have changed on historic 4th Street as well as at Capone's, which is less than a block away from the Sioux City Convention Center. Capone's is the brainchild of Yasinia 24, and her sister, Jessica Sanchez, 25. Our parents both work at Tyson Foods, but it was always their dream to open their own business, said Jessica, who is also a banker. They saved up all of their money and asked to and me to run it. It will be Yasinia who will be taking reins at Capone's on a full time basis. This is going to be my baby, she explained who formerly worked in public relations. I may need to set up a bedroom in the back because I'll be here all the time. Yesenia isn't kidding. Following a soft launch on January 14th, Capone's will be officially ready for business this week. So, what vibes is Capone's going for? According to Jessica, there will be something for everybody. Most places are considered a sports bar or a cocktail bar, she said. We don't want to limit ourselves that way. Instead, Capone's will have theme night for people who like karaoke or live DJs or local bands coming to perform. Since Capone's is located in the building that was formerly Jones Street Station, Sioux City longtime gay bar, it will also be LGBTQ friendly. We love the history of the building, Yesenia said. At different points, it was a tobacco distribution center, a gay bar, and now Capone's. There's a lot of life in this place. If the sisters have their way, the place will also have a lot of music. Capone's will have a great mix of musical entertainment, Yesenia said from Capone's elaborate DJ stage. Anything from rock to hip-hop to EDM, which is electronic dance music, to reggaeton will be performed here. For non-music lovers, Capone's will have a pool table, Jenga, and keep your fingers crossed, even a mechanical bull. We have so many ideas up our sleeves, Jessica said, it will be a great hangout place. And she means that literally. Capone's may also have a dedicated space for aerial yoga. Wait, isn't that when people do yoga poses while being assisted with the silk hammocky thing? Yep, this is definitely on the sister's wish list but bars make their name on the quality of their drinks. In that respect, Capone's will also follow a something-for-everybody model. We will have bottled beer, tap beer, as well as craft beer from local breweries, as Sinia said. I'm also looking forward to making imaginative cocktails a person can't get anywhere else. Speaking of imaginative drinks, Capone's will also have a full line of Mamamitas, which is a hard seltzer for that is made with real tequila, sparkling water, and natural flavors. Personally, I'm not much of a drinker, Yesenia said. I like mamamitas because they are lighter and more refreshing since it's a seltzer. Following in that line of thinking, she will also be creating a menu of mocktails for people who prefer not drinking alcohol. We want to create an atmosphere where you don't have to drink to have fun, Yesenia admitted. Huh? We both, we bet both Alejandro and Maribel are pretty proud of their entrepreneurial daughters. This is truly a family effort, Jessica said. Thank goodness we have a big family. Over the past few years, Yesenia has traveled both the east and west coast for a company that that runs the biggest bounce house in the world. I've done television. I've met with so many people and visited so many large cities, she said. Once I got out of school, I was ready to live and work in a big city with everything in it. Yet, Yesenia jumped at the a chance to be close to family again. I had to leave the area in order to really appreciate it, she said. Sioux City may be small in size, but it has plenty of big city conveniences. Remember, if Al Capone had a fondness for Sioux City, it must be a happenin' place. Actually, Yesseni Sanchez would be satisfied if her family's bar was simply a chill place to kick back and enjoy a drink. Capone's will have something for everyone, she said. We want to keep it that way. And now some briefs on upcoming events. Pet Rock, a cover band specializing in 1970s-era soft rock, will perform at Hard Rock Hotel and Casino Anthem on March seventeenth. Based out of Iowa and Omaha, Pet Rock perform iconic songs like Take It Easy and Brandy while dressed in wigs and bell-bottom jeans. Tickets are on sale at HardRockCasinoSueCity.com or in person at the hotel's rock shop. All events at Anthem are for people 21 and older. Killer Queen, a tribute to Queen, featuring Patrick Myers as Freddie Mercury, is coming for a performance at the Orpheum Theater on October 15th. Killer Queen, which performs music made popular by the legendary rock group Queen, first started public shows at London University. In 2016, they began performing in the United States. Since then, Killer Queen has headlined arena shows in the United States as well as Great Britain. Tickets are on sale at OrpheumLive.com or at the Tyson Events Center's Prime Bank box office. And then rock star John Waite is coming to perform at Hard Rock Hotel and Casino's Anthem on March 25th. Wait, a Lancaster, England-born performer with a career that spans more than 40 years, is best known for such hit songs as Head First, Back on My Feet Again, and Missing You. Tickets are now on sale at com or in person at the Rock Hotel's Rock Shop. And again, all anthem events are for audiences 21 and older. And now we move to Dear Abby. My brother passed away. He and my sister-in-law had a good marriage. A month after his funeral, my sister-in-law gave her kids their father's clothes, instructed them to go through them, keep what they wanted, or sell or donate the rest. It has been barely a year. Now she's redecorating their house, painting, taking down pictures, and buying new furniture. This bothers me greatly. I'm so hurt that everything is being changed. It's like she's trying to erase him all within a year. Should I ask her why everything is being changed and disposed of so soon? And how should I, and should I feel so hurt about this? Signed, unsure how to feel. And the response, Your former sister-in-law appears to be more pragmatic than sentimental, and there is nothing wrong with that. She knew her late husband could no longer use his wardrobe and saw no reason to keep the items hanging in the closet. That she offered his clothes to her children was appropriate. Now that she is now making changes to the house is not unusual. People are cautioned not to make important decisions for about a year after a spouse passes, and your former sister-in-law has wisely refrained. If you want to ask her why she's changing things, do so in a non-accusatory way that won't offend her. I suspect that you are feeling hurt because you are not ready to accept that your brother is gone forever. You might find it helpful to talk about it with someone with expertise in the grieving process. The next letter. Dear Abby, my husband and I have been married for nine years. While we were dating, he was kind, considerate, and loving. After we married, he turned into a chronic complainer, something he later confessed he had been hiding while we dated. He talks to me like I'm trash, and then gets nice when he wants something. He complains about my grown children, my best friend, even if I leave for work a couple of minutes early. He is a miserable person. I cannot do anything to make him happy. I can't take this anymore. He has taken the things away from me that I love. Flowers, gardening, pets, books, friends. I'm ready to leave, but he has cancer and I'd feel guilty. He is clear right now, but it will come back. I don't want to stay. Life is too short to live this way. He has a great support system with his family. They would take care of him. My health has been affected by him and his terrible attitude. What do I do? Worn out wife. And Abby's response. What you do now is consult a lawyer, pack your bags, and leave before he worsens. Do not expect your husband to be grateful for any of the efforts you have made on his behalf during the course of your marriage. During the time you were dating, he hid from you the fact that he was a verbal abuser. Now you know he was a fraud. Don't feel guilty for protecting yourself and reclaiming your life. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 24th. I'm your reader, Dagna. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.
1: From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is EarthDate. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find one to three percent of the Neanderthal genome in modern man, which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.